Yeah, can you turn with me in your Bibles? If you like, you can go to Jeremiah chapter 25, and then we're going to go to Luke chapter 13. And um, yeah, I, th- I mentioned this last week. It's funny, you know, like uh, just c- coming out of our conclusion of John's gospel, doing some stuff on discipleship. I just, I, I just felt like the Lord d- wasn't giving me direction on, on where we're going. Like I have a general sense. But I felt like he was telling me, oh, no, I'm just going to kind of let it out a little bit like this. And a couple weeks ago, he put a couple passages on my heart. Luke chapter 12, where we were last week with regards to worry and anxiety and, and where we're going to go this morning in Luke chapter 13. But I was reading this passage in uh, Jeremiah this week and uh, in my quiet time. And it just spoke to me and I think it'll speak to you. If you want, you can just close your eyes and listen. Or you can follow along in your Bibles. Ready? Jeremiah chapter 15, or chapter 25, verse 15. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, thus the Lord of the God of Israel said to me, take from my hand this cup of wine of wrath and make the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. So I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations to whom the Lord sent me drink it. Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, its kings and officials, to make them a desolation, a waste, a hissing, and a curse, as at this day. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, his servants, his officials, all his people, and all the mixed tribes of them, all the kings of the land of Uz, and all the kings of the land of the Philistines, Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron, and the remnant of Ashdod, Edom, Moab, and the sons of Ammon, all the kings of Tyre, all the kings of Sidon, all the kings of the coastlands across the sea, Dedan, Tima, Buzz, and all who cut the corners of their hair, all the kings of Arabia, and all the kings of the mixed tribes who dwell in the desert, all the kings of Zimri, all the kings of Elam, all the kings of Media, all the kings of the north, far and near, one after another, and all the kingdoms of the world that are on the face of the earth, and after them the king of Babylon shall drink. Then you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Drink and be drunk and vomit, fall and rise no more because of the sword that I am sending among you. And if they refuse to accept the cup from your hand, And you shall say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, you must drink. For behold, I begin to work disaster at the city that is called by my name. And shall you go unpunished? You shall not go unpunished, for I am summoning a sword against the inhabitants of the earth, declares the Lord of hosts. You therefore shall prophesy against them all these words and say to them, the Lord will roar from on high. And from his holy habitation utter his voice. He will roar mightily against his fold and shout like those who tread the grapes against the inhabitants of the earth. The clamor will resound to the ends of the earth for the Lord has an indictment against the nations. He is entering into judgment with all flesh and the wicked he will put to the sword, declares the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, disaster is going forth from nation to nation. A great tempest is stirring from the farthest parts of the earth. And those pierced by the Lord on that day shall extend from one end of the earth to the other. They shall not be lamented or gathered or buried. They shall be dung on the surface of the ground. 
Wail, you shepherds, and cry out. And roll in ashes, you lords of the flock. For the days of your slaughter and dispersion have come, and you shall fall like a choice vessel. No refuge will remain for the shepherds, nor escape for the lords of the flock. A voice, the cry of the shepherds and the wail of the lords of the flock, for the Lord is laying waste their pasture. And the peaceful folds are devastated because of the fierce anger of the Lord. Like a lion, he has left his lair. For the land has become a waste because of the sword of the oppressor and because of his fierce anger. I read that and I go, the nations are drunk. That's what I think. As I consider the, the, word, the word of the Lord and what's happening on the face of the earth, that, that there is a cup that has been, and it seems like mindless to me and senseless and like things aren't making sense and you can't understand what's going on. And, and church, we just have to believe this, that the Lord's at work, you know. One of the things that I just feel like I've taught so many, over the, so many times over the years, and if you've spent time at church, you've just heard it taught and heard it taught and heard it taught that in the last days, the coming of the Lord will be like a woman in labor and birth pangs, that the intensity and the frequency of these things will increase. And um, these days are upon us. We don't, we don't know what, uh, what the future holds and what's going on. And and on one level, we go, wow, this is just nuts. It's blown out of proportion. And on another level, we go, is there a reality to what's happening here? And we're caught all over the place. And it's like there's, a, there's a, an inebriation of the kingdoms of the earth. And so as followers of Jesus, we want to be those who are sober-minded. We want to be those who respond um, appropriately. And um, the Gospels and Jesus, uh, the message of the Gospel and Jesus is always, always the place for us to turn to get our bearings. And when we look at the teaching of Jesus, I want to take you to Luke chapter 13. Jesus was, uh, it's like fun to read the teachings of Jesus and you're like, man, how amazing it would be to spend time with him. And one of the, one of the things that he was is so well known for doing was this, is that Jesus would always answer a question with a question. <laughs> answer a question with a question. That was the way he so often taught, and it's the way the rabbis taught. In fact, there, you know, one time a, a, a Jewish student came to his rabbi, and he, he said to him, Rabbi, why is it then I, whenever I ask you a question, you always reply with another question? And the rabbi said, well, why shouldn't I? This is a joke. Yeah, question with a question. And, and what a great thing to go, wow, to be able to sit at the feet of Jesus and to ask questions. And it's awesome. You know, like we, you know, we have the privilege of doing that, of asking the Lord questions. And, uh, but what a great thought to think, wow, what a privilege the people had in those days and at that time to actually be physically present with Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, this is my question. What things would you ask him? What things would you be questioning him with regards to? Um, and I wonder what question he'd come back at you with, come back at me with. Well, those who followed him, the crowds who were around him had questions and they were firing questions at him. And 
on this particular day, they had a question, and it had something to do with a, a situation that all of them were familiar with, and they wondered what had happened and how God was at the work in the midst of it. In fact, it was a tragedy that had happened in Jerusalem. And tragedies are always, well, I mean, that, that word just infers like this terrible occurrence and accident. The tragedy that had happened in Jerusalem that this text refers to was controversial. It was political. It was racial. It had a religious component to it. Um, and, and it was an event that everyone in Israel had heard about and nobody understood what was actually going on. And when things happen around us that we don't understand, this is what this text is about, coming to the right view of looking at things we don't understand. Because we look at the world and we go, I don't understand what's going on. What the heck's going on? When things happen that we don't understand, often the question rises in, in, in the human heart. God, what are you doing? Where are you? What's happening? Why did these things happen? Why does this happen to these people? Why is this happening in Italy? Why is this happening in Iran? What's going on over here or over there? Why is this person sick or this tragedy happening here or this accident here? I thought those were good people, Lord. At least I believe they were good people. We have this, this attitude that can creep into to the human heart that we go, well, maybe God's like pouring out a judgment. Maybe God is... Um, judging some, something that we don't know about. Maybe they aren't really, you know, good people, but where's God and why is this happening? And, and looking around the world today, we just have to like go, okay, Lord, what are you doing? What are you doing? What's going on, Lord? We want to understand. We want to be people who understand the times. And Luke, in his gospel in chapter 13 here, tells us two stories that are totally unique to his gospel. They're not... They're not in the other Gospels, and so they, we don't always come across these two particular stories. In fact, one is a story of Jesus' life and his ministry and his encounter with people, and the second part of it is a parable that he tells, and this parable is only in Luke's Gospel. And so let's check it out. Uh, chapter 13, verse 1 to 9, and actually I haven't prayed, so let's pray as we come to God's Word. Let's pray first. Lord, we just thank you for your word this morning. We thank you, God, that we can come in and just uh, look to you for counsel, direction, guidance. We pray, Lord, that your spirit would speak to us this morning, Lord. Um, we invite you to search our hearts. We invite you, Lord, to turn over the soil of our hearts. We pray, God, that, that in our hearts you would find good soil for the seed of your word. And so we just open our hearts to you. Pray your spirit would speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. So Luke chapter 13, verse 1. There were, there were some present at that very time who told about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Were those 18 on the tower of Siloam, whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them? Do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No. I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told them this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. 
And he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year until I dig around it and put it on and put on manure. Then should it bear fruit next year well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. So two interesting kind of stories here. They're not, they're not recounted in the other gospels. This parable, this controversy, and this parable. And actually, I, I said the controversy, it's a tragedy. A couple of tragedies that happen. In fact, Jesus talks about two tragedies. One's a violent incident, a murderous incident. And the other one is like accidental. One's people being murdered, and another one is a tower falling on people. Let me read it again, for just verse one, this first part. There were some present at that very time who told about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices, and he answered them, do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Th this is the violent murderous incident that they began to just ask Jesus about. They're like trying to understand, where's God? What's happening? Why did this happen? Bible doesn't give us any details. It's like kind of one of these stories where you're like, well, well what, what happened? Well, history recounts a couple situations with Pilate. Pontius Pilate, you know Pilate. We know Pilate's famous for washing his hands of Jesus at Jesus' trial before the crucifixion, but Pontius Pilate had a history of not getting along with the Jews, and history recounts it. Early on, in his post as the governor of Palestine, he quickly clashed with God's people. And it began this way. When he, when he was posted in Jerusalem over Palestine, he, he was excited about his new role, and and what he did was he had Roman soldiers carrying kind of these busts of the Roman emperor, the Caesar. And he brought those busts up onto the temple mount. And these images that were offens offensive, images of Caesar, images of a human being in the, in the mind of the a Jew, it was, it was idolatry and they had been brought up onto the temple mount and the Jews did not worship idols. And so naturally, of course, the conclusion is they were, they were totally offended and, and angry about the audacity of Pilate to parade such things up on the temple mount where God's people worshiped him, Yahweh. And so what happened was this, is a riot ensued and the soldiers had to deal with it and blood was shed on the Temple Mount. To make up for his air, Pilate did this. He, he schemed and he made a, a plan that he would build an aqueduct to Jerusalem to supply the city in the mountains uh, with water. Uh, Jerusalem is a, a city that's that's built up in the mountains. It doesn't have a, a natural, it's not built on a lake. It's not built on the edge of a river, they rely on springs of water and, and rainwater. And so he thought he would help the residents of Jerusalem and, and believe that by building this infrastructure of an aqueduct, he could bring fresh water into the city and this would help his relationship with the Jewish people. 
But again, Pilate made a really bad misstep. Rather than bother the emperor for, you know, funds from the Roman coffers, he identified that in the house of the Lord, there were these tithe baskets, you know, with lots of money in them. And so he decided in all human wisdom that maybe he would just dip into the, the coffers of the temple to fund this capital project and use God's, well, the offerings that God's people had brought, their tithes and their offerings to fund the whole thing. It was going to be his revenue stream. And it looked like, you think about it, it looked like a win-win for Pilate, you know, build an aqueduct, win the hearts of the people, impress the emperor with his superior skills and Somehow he didn't foresee the uprising that would happen when he dipped his fingers into the offering plate and it blew up in his face. And so what happened is this. Luke doesn't tell us about the atrocity, but Josephus does. That the crowds uh, came and they gathered on the temple mount and... Pilate had to deal with them. And, and like I said, Luke doesn't tell us about this atrocity, but, but I think this is the story that's being referred to because, you know, Pilate thought it was appropriate. He could just appropriate these, these, these funds. They were stolen in the minds of the Jews, these offerings for, from God's people. But this large crowd of Jews gathered on the Temple Mount and they were angry. So Pilate did this. He sent soldiers into their midst, but before he sent them into their midst, he had them dress in civilian clothing. And they went up there onto the Temple Mount, dressed like any other worshiper that was up there so that they couldn't be identified as soldiers, just another commoner on the Temple grounds. And then the soldiers pulled out their concealed weapons and they turned them on the innocent, unarmed Jews that were on the Temple Mount, and it was murderous, and it was tragedy, and blood was shed, and the blood of innocent Jews was shed on the same grounds where blood flowed from the sacrifices of the Temple. Blood of the innocent and the blood of the sacrifice, and it mixed in Pilate's murderous plot against the Jewish people. So those present asked Jesus about this. They're like, hey, Jesus, what's the deal, man? Where was God? How do you explain this? This tragedy has happened and we can't figure it out. Were they like wicked people? These Jews who, like who dies on the Temple Mount? You know, in the Old Testament, you look at the Old Testament, you want to know who died on the Temple Mount? Wicked people. Wicked people would run there for refuge because they had nowhere left to go. And they'd be dragged out and, what happened that these people would go through this? So they asked Jesus about this tragedy. Question. Question Jesus. And you know what that means? If you question Jesus, Jesus is going to bring you back. He's going to come back with a question. And funny things about questions. When you ask the wrong question, you get the wrong answer. And there's something in the human heart that, that says, that happened to them. Maybe God was judging them. Maybe they're more wicked than we are. Maybe they're, they're evil people. Maybe God was judging them. And Jesus knew their question inferred, their question inferred such a conclusion. And so he clarified and he said this. Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? He said, no. 
I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. See, Jesus raised the question whether the calamity occurred because these Galileans were especially evil, which was the view of the day. That these events happened because of sin. And Jesus answered and he revealed this, that they were asking the wrong question. And when we look at the world, church, and we look at what's going on right now, we have to ask the right question. We want to clarify what that question is that God wants us to ask this morning. Jesus says those Galileans were not worse sinners than anyone. They were not. And, and so they talk about this one violent incident, but then he goes right to another ax, not a violent incident, but an accident that happened at the Tower of Siloam. Let's read this part again. Uh, verse 4. Jesus says, or those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. This is, uh, the, the, the tower of Siloam was, well, the pool of Siloam is the main water source for the city of Jerusalem. It's a spring. Hezekiah built a tunnel that feeds the water from that spring into the city. A famous story in the Old Testament as, as he was preparing for the kings of Babylon to come against this city. And here's this wall, this, this tower. And I imagine that people were one day at the pool like people always were in the city and something happened. I don't know if it was under construction. We don't know if it was a finished product with, you know, project with an engineering flaw or whatever it was, but a terrible accident happened. A tower collapsed and 18 people were crushed as this tower came down and they died. And so Jesus asks this question, do you think that these people were worse offenders than all the other residents of Jerusalem. Why these 18? How come it happened to these 18 people? How come this person got cancer? How come this person got in a car accident? How come this person got COVID-19? Whatever it is. Why them? Do you think they were worse offenders than all the others, Jesus says? And he says, no, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will likewise perish. See, church, too often we ask the wrong question and the world asks the wrong question. Here's the right question. Here's the right question as we look around the world today. Or the right question Jesus was giving them. They should ask this. Why wasn't I killed on the Temple Mount? Here's the right question. Why didn't the Tower of Siloam fall on me the day that I was there? The amazing thing about our lives is this. We're here. We're here. We're able to worship today. We're able to gather. We're able, we're able to praise the Lord, and that's a blessing. And Jesus would say to you this, and unless you repent, you too will perish. The right question is always, why am I here? Not why did it happen. Why didn't it happen to me? is the right question. And the answer is this, is because God is still giving us time. And what a blessing that is. Time to repent. 
Time to be right. And the whole idea of what Jesus is saying here is this, is that you should take advantage of the time that God is giving you. Because you never know what tragedy, you never know what accident could befall you. Yes, people were murdered on the Temple Mount. Yes, a wall fell on people. But Jesus' point was this, that whether you're, you're killed or, or not killed is no measure of your righteousness or your unrighteousness. Anyone can get cancer. Anyone can get in a car accident. Only God's grace allows us to live, church. Every day, his mercy is new to us. And the point brought out in verse 3 and 5 is this, unless you, will rep unless you repent, you too will likewise perish. See, death, that's the common denominator. One out of one. Here's a stat for you. I don't know how many people get COVID-19, but one out of one will die. Every single one of us. And only repentance can bring life as we prepare. Only repentance opens the door into the kingdom of God. And this concept is so important. It's so important for us to understand this in the days in which we live. Whether you observe it, tragedy, whether you experience tragedy, the question is not why did it happen? The question is, why wasn't it me? Why am I still here? And we know the gospel that because of, the rebel, uh, because of human rebellion against God, which is sin, because of sin, we deserve to die. The scripture says to us that the wages of sin is death, that, that, that it's only because of the Lord's mercy that we are not entirely wiped out. And, and we, we spend so much time muttering. We spend so much time talking under our breath and mumbling against the Lord about why things didn't work out when what we should be doing is praising him. <laughs> thanking him for his goodness and his grace and his mercy, that, he, that he's good, that he's steadfast in love, that he's steadfast in his faithfulness. And Jesus said this, when you see tragedy and you see accidents, the proper response is personal repentance. We turn our hearts back to God. We look around the world and we say, whoa, I better make sure I am right with Jesus Christ. We turn our hearts back to God. Lest the next time it be us. Repentance. Repentance here literally means to have a change of mind. And it's a word that, that infers the human, the human dimension involved in the experience of salvation. See, I have a part in salvation. I didn't, I didn't do anything to be saved. Jesus did it all, but I have a part. And my part is this. I have to repent with regards to receiving salvation. Our part is repentance, and God's part is to renew me and to transform me and to do all the work to save me. He does it all. But I've got to turn to him. And repentance is always the proper response to the message of Jesus. Repentance is the proper response to the message of his love, his sacrifice, his cross, his, his suffering, his death as my substitute, his burial, his resurrection, 
His ascension into heaven, Jesus did it all for our good and for the Father's glory. And our response is this, to turn to him in repentance and faith. And it's right that I respond, it's right that we respond to the relationship that Jesus has initiated with us. And the right response is this, repentance. Literally, there has to be a change of mind. Scripture says that God has commanded that all men everywhere repent. And repentance is, is here's what it's not. Repentance is not just a feeling of sorrow, you know. Repentance is not just a feeling of regret with regards to sin. When we feel sorrow or we feel regret about something that we've said or something that we've done, we say this, I'm sorry. In fact, us Canadians, we're really good at that, aren't we? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. People mock us as Canadians, you know. Say sorry for everything. Even when we haven't done anything, we say I'm sorry. That's not repentance. Repentance is not saying I'm sorry. Some people think that repentance is trying harder. Well, I'll try harder. I, I, I won't do that anymore. I'll change. I'll reform my behavior. I'll be a better person. I will be a good person. That is not repentance. Repentance is, is not a work of human merit. Repentance is an acknowledgement. Here's what repentance is. And that's why it's like my only part in salvation and it's so small. Repentance is this act. To acknowledge, I have no merit. I have nothing. I've got nothing to offer in this situation, Lord. I have no merit. In myself, Lord, I'm undeserving. In myself, I'm a sinner. In myself, apart from you, I deserve your judgment. And repentance is a change of mind. Repentance is to change your mind about sin. And repentance is to change your mind about Jesus. Repentance says, I will not live indifferent to sin. Repentance says, I will not live indifferent to Jesus. I will turn from sin and I will turn to Jesus. At one time, our lives were turned towards sin and we were turned away from Jesus. I face sin, I worship sin, I live for sin. Repentance is this. I turn my back to sin and I turn to Jesus. It's a change of mind. It's to say, Jesus, I believe what you say about sin. It's to say, Jesus, I believe in what you did to save me from sin. There's nothing in myself. I turn from sin and I turn to you. And in repentance, we, we turn from sin and in faith, we turn to Christ. And when we repent of sin and turn in faith to Jesus, we begin to discover how good Jesus is. Aren't you discovering that about Jesus? It's like an adventure knowing Jesus, that Jesus is so good. I have to tell you, like, I'm actually, like, super excited about what's going on in the world. It's, like, weird. But I'm like, Lord, I feel like I'm born for these days. I feel like for us as a church that God has called us to serve him in these days. That these are great days of opportunity, not days of fear and anxiety and worry, but they are days to serve Jesus and to try and do it well. And in the midst of that, repentance is important. Repentance is important for those who don't know Jesus. 
And repentance is important for those who do. Because we never know what tragedy, what controversy, what accident might happen in the days to come. And when we repent of sin and, and turn in faith to Jesus, like I said, we, we discover how good Jesus is. We find out that Jesus is not only a, a savior from guilt and a savior from sin and death, but that Jesus is also a life giver. We got to know that about Jesus in these days. That Jesus didn't just save you from sin. He saved you from sin for life. Eternal life and abundant life. He saved you from something to something. He's a life giver and there's power in him to live. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, man. In me there is life. And for you and I, no longer do we have to like live under the, the yoke and the bondage and the control of, of, of sin because in Christ there is life. And so I would say this, when we think of repentance, look at the people of this world need to repent of their sins. And Christians, we need to repent of our coldness and indifference to the things of God. Church, we need to repent of our coldness and our indifference to the things of God. It creeps in. And we fall asleep. Spiritually, we get lulled, you know. Lulled, lulled to sleep. And, and, and it's in times like this that God's saying, hey, church, wake up. That happens in repentance from that coldness and indifference. Jesus went on and he told a parable. Look at verse 6 again. He told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. And he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look for these three years now. I've come seeking fruit from this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. This story is kind of funny. Because where was the fig tree planted? Did you notice that? The fig tree was planted in a vineyard. A fig tree planted in, why would you plant a fig tree in a vineyard? Don't you plant grapes in a vineyard? But this fig tree was planted in the vineyard. It was, it was a tree that had received special treatment. I think the vineyard's like the Lord, this is, the earth is the vineyard of the Lord. And he's planted you a fig tree special tree. A tree that gets special treatment. It gets placed in a special spot. It's not left into an orchard of fig trees. No, it gets, it gets prime land, the best land, the best soil, the best sun, the best watering. This fig tree is planted in the vineyard. And it has a vine dresser that tends to it. Not normal for a fig tree. Vine dressers don't feed, they don't tend fig trees. Vine dressers tend grapes, tend grapevines. But there was a vine dresser, and it's, this is unusual. And so the man 
who owned this vineyard, Jesus says, came looking for fruit. Because that's what, I got a fig tree in my yard. And, and, and Gus, it's produced no fruit, by the way. <laughs> Your mom gave it to me, Georgia, and I love Georgia. And my, my fig tree never produced any fruit. Calvin gave me a second one because we said, well, maybe if we get two of them there, you know, they'll reproduce. No figs. I'm like, my yard sucks. You got to know my yard. We don't get Not a good spot for fig trees. Yeah. And so every year, you know, I go to my fig tree and I hope to find fruit and I found none because you should expect to find fruit on a fig tree. The owner of this vineyard came looking for fruit. In fact, he said three years Three years. It's probably uh, interesting that the three years, because it was that it was common that a tree was given time. It wasn't expected to produce fruit immediately. I mean, we know that about a young tree. A young tree is not going to just instantly produce fruit. It needs a season of time. And so the cultural practice, the biblical practice, was leave the tree alone for a period of three years and then often they would let it produce for three years and then on the seventh year they'd finally begin to cultivate. This owner comes looking for fruit and he doesn't find any. Sometimes I feel like that's my life. Do you ever feel like that? You're like, Lord, where's the fruit? I'm like trying, I'm like striving to produce fruit. Where's the fruit, Lord? Lord, I feel like I'm misusing your patience with me. Lord, I feel like you've been merciful and I've, I've forgotten to be responsible with that which you've given. I wanna, we want to honor the Lord with fruit as followers of Jesus. This master comes and he says, cut it down. Cut it down. In other words, end its life. And the vine dresser comes and the vine dresser, you know, it's interesting. Jesus said, I'm the vine, you are, I'm the vine dresser, you are the vine. Or I'm the vine, you are the branches. My father's the vine dresser, sorry. The vine dresser says he'll do two things. Don't cut it down yet. Don't cut it down. First, let me dig up around the roots. Let's deal with the roots. See, the lack of fruit tells you something about the roots. You know, the, the fruit... Here's what I, I, I like this saying. The fruit exposes the root. If you ever want to know the root of a ministry or of a life or whatever, you just look at the fruit. And the fruit will tell you the health of the root. And so he says, I'll dig around the roots. I'll expose the roots because there's obviously a problem with the roots if there's no fruits. And the Lord does this. The Lord does this in our lives. The Lord, the Lord wants to get into the roots of our lives and he wants to expose the things that are unhealthy. He wants to expose the things that, that are sinful and he wants to deal with them so that there can be fruitfulness for him and for his kingdom. And then the second thing this vine dresser does is this. He says, let me put manure in there. Let me fertilize. Let me, let me make sure that there is like a source of nutrients and a, and, a, and a source for the health of this plant so that this tree will bring forth fruit. We've got we to gotta dig up the roots, and then we've got to fertilize the roots. And I would tell you, for the church, right now in the world, here's what God is doing. God is digging down to the roots. 
The roots are exposed, church. The roots have been exposed. And the Lord is seeking to help his church. And if, and if the church doesn't properly respond, the followers of Jesus don't properly respond. We don't know when the accident will happen or when the tragedy will happen. J.C. Ryle, this Anglican minister from 100 years ago, I just recently read a biography on him, but just such a great quote from J.C. Ryle. I want you to hear this. Listen to this. Affliction is one of God's medicines. By it, he often teaches lesson that, lessons which would not be learned in any other way. By it, he often draws souls away from sin and the world which would otherwise have perished everlastingly. Health is a great blessing, but sanctified disease is better. Prosperity and worldly comfort are what we naturally desire, but losses and crosses are far better for us if they lead us to Christ. Thousands at the last day will testify with David, it is good for me that I have been afflicted. This is what David said. David said, it's good that I've been afflicted because affliction caused me to take a look at the roots of my life. Affliction led David to repentance. And, and, and you know, we're, we're blessed with so much prosperity in, in, in our nation and in the area of the world where we live. We've got to remember that, that the Lord is exposing the roots and, he, and he's seeking to help us, to purify us, to wake us up, church. And, you know, you, you look at this, this parable and, and the lack of judgment in in the parable, the, the, the tree doesn't get cut down, shouldn't be a sign that everything was okay. It was a sign of God's mercy, not that everything was okay. God was being merciful. But judgment, the axe at the root of the tree would not be held off forever. And, and Jeremiah declared this to the people to whom he preached. He said, before you is the way of life and death. And thus says the Lord, Choose life. You know what's amazing about this parable is that the parable's left open-ended. We don't know. Did the tree produce fruit? I don't know. Did it get cut down? I don't know. I don't know what happened. After being cultivated for a year and the roots exposed and, and the manure and the fertilizer, did the, did the fruit, did the fig tree in the vineyard bear fruit? And Jesus doesn't tell. And it's significant that this is like open-ended. Because here's the thing. Your life is open-ended and God is calling you to supply the conclusion. <laughs> right at the end of the story. It's up to us. The question is not what happened to the tree. The question is, what will happen to me? <laughs> God, I want to serve you in this generation. That should be our heart. God is seeking fruit, church, and he will not accept substitutes. And the time for repentance is now, and the way to produce fruit is to let the Lord get into the roots of your life. As we watch what's unfolding in this world, we need to ask ourselves, am I bearing fruit for the kingdom of God? Am I bearing fruit for King Jesus? 
And I'd remind you of this. The people of the world, they need to turn to the Lord in repentance of sins. But as us, the church, Christians, followers of Jesus, we need to be always repentant of coldness and indifference. May God stoke the flames of our hearts. Amen? Could you guys stand with me this morning? I'm going to invite the worship team to come. Lord,